0: Hey, welcome back everyone to Application Security Weekly. We got the announcements out of the way. Uh, so we're just going to dive right into, uh, I think we're going to start with devdocs.io before we get into some news. I've just started uh, poking around in this. This is, this is fascinating, Keith.
1: I think you're really going to like it, Paul. I mean, uh, as a tool, I, I have to admit it. So I used this when I was flying out to San Francisco. last
0: Hey, Keith. I, I can't hear you. If we could, we could cut the music. The music is really loud in my headphones. I really like it like, though.
1: No, it's good. It's good. And um, so what I was saying was, DevDocs.io is a really interesting tool. That's it's open source. It's free to use. Uh, the reason that I like it though is it allows you to choose uh, which frameworks, libraries, documentation that you want to go ahead and cache to your browser, and then you can use it offline. And the reason mm. that I really liked it is uh, when I was flying out to San Francisco last year to go on site for Bug Crab uh, at headquarters, I had a six and a half hour flight and I had a presentation that I was working on building. So I needed some bootstrap and some CSS uh, information so that I could make sure that it came together in the way that I wanted because I was writing that presentation in Impress.js. And to that end, it was kind of nice being able to say, okay, I don't have to rely on maybe a little bit shoddy Wi-Fi on the plane or even buy Wi-Fi on the plane. I just have this documentation at my fingertips. Um, For those that aren't familiar with things like Git, for example, they even have uh, technologies like Git in terms of how to go ahead and, and use that for debugging or administration or any number of other things that you might do in terms of patching. And then they even have uh, languages, so Go, Python, uh, frameworks such as AngularJS and React, uh, as well as, of course, things like server-side information. So Nginx uh, is a good example of one of the ones that I have, H- Apache HTTP server. And uh, yeah, it's it's been pretty expansive and it continues to grow. It is an open-source project. So I actually have the link to the GitHub project as well, so you can run this locally as your own kind of server on your system if you wanted to. And uh, yeah, check it out. It's probably one of the best tools that I've discovered in in recent times. Awesome.
0: Yeah, it's a great resource. Yeah, Nginx is particularly interesting because it's more like a programming language than I think Apache is. And I've done some migrations, and yeah, it it requires some... I use programming language very loosely, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's... It is something that uh, the the way that the file structure works, for example, and the way that you're supposed to put information in is very particular. It's it's what a developer might call as an opinionated framework. It, yeah. it tells you you must do things in this way, otherwise it breaks, as I'm sure you've probably experienced.
0: Yeah, and there was like a weird thing where there, you couldn't do an if condition based on a negative condition. So you couldn't do if not this, and there was all these examples on how to get around that. I'm like... This is just bending the laws of physics and should never be done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And the other nice thing about it as well is so even looking at like Nginx, uh, they do have the ability to do different versions of software. So depending on um, Nginx might be not the best example here, but Docker is a really good example of different versions that have come out recently that you might want to have different documentation on. Or if you're like me and you tend to kind of, you know, have you're a mad scientist, you have your own laboratory of things that you're doing, you probably have different versions of documentation that are lying around based on the things that you're doing. Uh, and that's exactly what I've done here for my own setup.
0: Yeah, like the Compose uh, XML markup is the different versions are completely different in some instances. It's really
1: annoying. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I don't know if you want to move on to the news. I know that yeah, we have quite a lot to cover. Uh, So the one that I really wanted to cover first was how and this is actually a it's a fictitious article uh, that is written in in the realm of truth. And this is based on my experience of working with uh, Node and NPM packages, which is basically how someone, specifically a malicious actor, would go about uh, introducing bad code or malicious code into the node uh, package management uh, libraries, or for example. And then from there, if they got that ingested into other libraries, so for example, now the, the one that they use here is, I wanna be able to colorize my uh, console log output so that I can more easily read it. If I were to make that the package that I was introducing and then bundle it into other node packages that everybody is using, I can suddenly take my one malicious package in uh, the node package management library and suddenly introduce it into things that people are actually using. And by doing that, I can obfuscate my code in a way that is potentially malicious and therefore could allow me to receive people's credit cards. So again, the whole uh, article itself is, is an act of fiction. Uh, but when I was reading it, I, I thought to myself, yeah, this this could actually happen and it, it probably will be something that uh, we end up seeing here in 2018 because, quite frankly, the whole idea of being able to just import a bunch of stuff and, and get my job done that much quicker without having to write a lot of code is more or less the way of DevOps and JavaScript as it exists today. So. A little bit lengthier of an article definitely check it out and read it again it is a work of fiction but it's definitely grounded in some truth of things that i could see actually happening awesome yeah it's scary at the same time the next one is is uh not uh, unfortunately grounded in reality which is uh, epic games reporting pretty huge spikes in uh processing compute time as a result of the uh, Meltdown Inspector patches to their cloud environment. In fact, uh, in the two articles that I've cited here, they both have the same uh, chart, and it shows the actual CPU utilization going from something like around 20-ish percent to up over like the 50 plus percent mark. So uh, to the extent that if you're using cloud services today, post the uh, release of those patches for Meltdown Inspector, go check your CPU utilization and, and moreover, go check to see how much you're spending. Because if you're doing uh, some heavy computation as they are for hosting game servers, you're probably going to be doubling your cost uh, just from, from this case, the actual patches that were rolled out to prevent the speculative execution uh, vulnerabilities.
0: So they, they haven't figured out a way around that issue where patching it doesn't adversely affect performance.
1: Nope. So it's what it looks epic. like in this case
0: is... It's pretty yeah, epic.
1: Ha, <laughs> get it? Right. Uh, yeah, poor for epic games, right? Like Fortnite, from everything I've heard, I don't play it myself, but um, some of my colleagues do, and they've, they've spoken very highly of it. And it's kind of unfortunate that, in effect, for them to make the game as enjoyable an experience for their users, they were probably using that speculative execution pretty heavily, mm-hmm. as was well Postgres, uh, for going back to databases for a moment. And as a result of the patches coming out, if that speculative execution is locked down, uh, in this case, even like, you know, maybe by a factor of two, suddenly the actual CPU utilization doubles. And it's just the worst case scenario for a lot of cloud-based companies. Mm. And so
0: this CPU bug also affects CPUs on the video cards? Is that what NVIDIA drivers are fixing?
1: So yeah, actually, so it's uh, in this case, Nvidia is pushing patches for this, and it's it's you're correct. In this case, it's not the actual GPU uh, chipset itself, or even the you know the the computing processors on the the actual video cards. It's the drivers that interact with the CPU of the oh, system. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, that is effectively being patched here, so to the effect that uh, Spectre and Meltdown don't actually affect the GPUs themselves. Their interaction with the CPU on the system or on the motherboard, in this case, is what needs to be patched, and that's the drivers between the GPU and the system itself. Which is crazy, right? I it mean, is crazy. And is the, there? Do you think there's a performance hit in your
0: GPU now based on this driver update? Or no, because the it's not the code that's running on the GPU; it's the code that interacts with the processor. You wonder if there's a performance hit now if. Should we all go buy bigger video cards?
1: <laughs> well, if I said yes, uh, I'm sure that everyone would be very happy about that because yes. you know, they can have an excuse. Keith Hoodlet says you should buy a new video card because of this. Uh, so, yeah. honey, honey I, I, need I need to, to buy- build a new
0: gaming <laughs> rig because Keith said <laughs> <Right>. so.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, so as much as I'd like to say yes, uh, right now they're saying that there shouldn't be any performance hits to your GPU as a result of these patches. Um, the the one things that I always go back to is like the whole Radeon versus Nvidia, right? Uh, some people are say you know Nvidia is great because of the drivers that allow you to get the best performance. They control the performance really well, whereas uh, ATI or the Radeons is like yeah you you don't have very good drivers, but the chipset is really strong. Mm. And so to the extent that I imagine the interaction with the CPU on the system will have some performance hits. Uh, it's yet to be to be merited or, or uh, drawn out per se but we shall see yeah
0: it's interesting we've uh, we got five years out of our system that does live streaming uh, I think is what we the the technologies the CPU and, and motherboard and everything we estimates around five years old um, and so we're building a new system with an i7 8700k and like even just a50 dollar uh, video card will You know, suffice for because we don't really need the video processing. There's a separate card that takes a feed uh, into a PCI Express slot that sends it out. Um, But we did put an external video card in it and we did choose NVIDIA uh, GeForce card, like a gig of RAM. It's like 50 bucks uh, just to offload that from the CPU uh, because we need as much CPU uh, as possible to do the live streaming. I mean, and that's all it does in life is just stream stuff. So.
1: I'd be really interested, for especially your use case, Paul, to see if you're seeing any performance hits as a result of the uh, Spectre and Meltdown patches. Because uh, I know a lot of people who were talking about even just compiling things, right? So compiling uh, using like Gradle and and Java-based compilation, yeah, saw pretty significant increases in compilation times. I mean, from a factor of five minutes to twenty minutes, uh, which is pretty significant. And if you're doing you know, I, I imagine that especially for companies like Microsoft who do pretty monolithic, mm-hmm. you know, compilation or, uh, of their code into uh, into a single deliverable or binary, right? Like, that's going to be pretty interesting to see how that all changes over the next six months.
0: Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell if the problem's gotten worse uh, because it is, you know, it's basically older older hardware that's running newer software which probably, and actually in my reading, is tuned to take advantage of the newer processors. So uh, even if there is a performance hit, will likely still be well under any threshold because even just moving to a, an i7 platform, there's some processor feature that I can't remember the name of it, but they're like, you should definitely have this processor feature because we use it in our software and it, it greatly uh, helps performance, so
1: as long as it wasn't speculative execution i think you're fine uh <laughs> it was not.
0: i definitely would have recognized if it was speculative execution i don't remember what it was but yeah it's uh it well, it's software from telestream uh it's actually called wirecast so
1: very cool that's actually really neat
0: yeah well uh, it'll be interesting once that system comes together we can we can talk about it on the show
1: yeah yeah and i'd, I'd that'd be actually really fun especially because uh we can start to nerd out about all the different things you can do with it absolutely um One of the things I do want to speaking of, you know, systems that are are running important uh, software, right? So the Oracle WebLogic uh, vulnerabilities that were actually patched back in October of last year are uh, now being seen as uh, being exploited by Bitcoin miners, which I thought was uh, kind of telling. Right. Because in this case, if you have uh, flaws of this nature, six to eight months ago, it probably would have been just ransomware campaigns. Uh, and it sounds like more and more that we're seeing uh, everybody switch over to suddenly using those systems that are now being compromised to mine for cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin or otherwise. And uh, to the extent that Oracle's WebLogic here has uh, one, one CVE 2017-10271 uh, that is rated as critical. And uh, to the extent that it's also in uh, use largely by education uh, institutions or educational institutions is interesting to me, uh, because as you know, Paul, from your history of working in in the realm of education, patching systems is probably not a high priority on their list, Uh, and quite frankly, those systems are also probably pretty beefy because they need to support a lot of students. So I'd I'd be interested to get uh, your your thoughts on, uh, you know, patching in the world of uh, universities and education.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to remember where WebLogic uh, plays into the educational software market. I'm not sure what exactly it's used for in in education.
1: I wonder if it's like student records, honestly, because it, it does say you know Web server or WebLogic server, PeopleSoft, Banner, Oracle Identity Manager. Oh, okay, you said it.
0: Uh, Banner is uh, kind of like the ERP. Uh, enterprise management for universities, so that's why oh, most uh, universities to manage students, finance, financial aid, uh, all of that stuff, will implement Banner in their back end as their enterprise enterprise you know platform uh, of choice. Whereas enterprises, right, there are usually SAP or uh, a different in other Oracle a, a different set of products from or well it, probably a lot of the same back end stuff, uh, but Banner package is that. Uh, enterprise applications for educations. So that's why you're seeing it come from REN ISAC, uh, because it's uh, heavily
1: used in education. Gotcha, gotcha. And it's it's interesting to me as well, because if you think about it, right, like think about the dynamic change here. These are systems that are used for things like financial aid, right? They are literally handling not only students PII, but also money. And they're not yep. being used, This this vulnerability isn't being used necessarily to steal all of that information. And maybe it is. But that it's being used to now mine cryptocurrency mine. Yeah. says a lot about the value of cryptocurrency.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they can probably make, well, fly under the radar, certainly, more so than stealing information and then selling it. They can fly under the radar uh, more easily by just using it for mining and and still make some money on it. That's probably the, would be my guess in the approach.
1: Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, and that is, uh, it is a kind of an interesting world that we live in, especially because of the fact that um, people that are basically handling cryptocurrency, right, uh, seem to be doing it not so well. Specifically, uh, Krebs or Brian Krebs on Krebs on Security calls out Coinbase uh, for their handling of uh, what is Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, is, is the other one, is the fork. And uh, I don't know if you managed to see any of this article. It was uh, late breaking news, uh, I think, yesterday or two days ago. Um, I'm happy to jump into it if you didn't get a chance to look at it.
0: Yeah, this is a Krebs article on a website glitch let me overstock my Coinbase. It's interesting.
1: Yeah, and effectively what it is, is uh, in this case, overstock.com, he could use or select Bitcoin as the payment method. But what he could then do is he would be able to change that payment method when he was going to check out to Bitcoin Cash. And Bitcoin Cash, comparatively speaking, is... Uh, something like, if you were to take a hundred thousand dollars, Bitcoin cash uh, in Bitcoin value, Bitcoin cash is like fifteen thousand dollars, right? So for a seventy-eight dollar purchase, he was able to basically purchase it for what was equivalent twelve U.S. dollars in Bitcoin cash, and uh, and so to that end. His hypothetical situation here is if you spend, uh, uh, say, maybe $100,000 on a three-carat platinum diamond ring, but pay for it in Bitcoin cash for Mm $15,000, and then return it to overstock, they would return you Bitcoin, not Bitcoin cash. Gotcha. So you would now make $85,000 in profit off of this, which is, uh, again, you know, it's like here you literally have the magic of one plus one equals four. Mm Mm-hmm. Sweet. So, yeah. Hopefully they fix that issue. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, right. Well, I mean, when Brian Krebs comes calling you, I mean, he is uh, what? The the world's intrusion prevention system? Uh, So maybe. Who knows? But it was kind of interesting to hear uh, that come out because it's like, yeah, this is just a simple people might have, you know, like thinking about the way that this was developed on the back end, right? Maybe they didn't actually differentiate what was Bitcoin versus Bitcoin cash, and the mechanisms or the features that were handling payment. And at the end of the day, they just, you know, they didn't cross the wires appropriately or they didn't uh, separate out those wires appropriately. And they were now crossed and on the front end and the back end. I
0: like like how Brian tested this vulnerability and actually made some profit. I don't know how much exactly that was. It wasn't $85,000, right? It was like $77.80, it looks like. Um, He offered to send it back to overstock.com. And they were like, no, just keep it. And he donated it to archive.org, which I think is awesome. That's awesome. Good that's job, awesome. Brian. It's
1: almost like It's almost like he got it as a bug bounty, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pretty much, right? So that's awesome of him to, to put it out to archive.org. They're great people. So. Absolutely. Uh, more problems, by the way. So getting, getting back to processors for a moment, AMD's uh, chip internally, the PSP chip, which is built in as a uh, security trust zone has a remote code execution flaw built into it. So this went full disclosure on January 3rd uh, over on SecLists.org. So most people would uh, refer to that as where you can get Nmap or get more information on Nmap. Um, so it's basically the firmware trusted platform module is allowing you to go ahead and get stack-based buffer overflow, which was found based on uh, the researchers doing static analysis of the actual like processing uh, mm-hmm. languages.
0: We actually covered this on uh, Hack Naked News this week. Doug White did uh, an expert commentary on it to kind of, because everyone was talking about Meltdown Inspector. And, and we talked about that with uh, Jake Williams, aka Malware Jake, on Paul Security Weekly. Doug was like, I want to cover this AMD thing because it's kind of like flying under the radar. So I'm glad you added it here as a reminder. If you want more about that, uh, and Keith, you're more than welcome to expound upon it. But Doug actually did a, a whole segment on it.
1: I'll defer to Doug in this case. I mean, I, I was looking at the actual vulnerability that they have and the proof of concept that they have up on SecLists. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the remote code execution against uh, a, a processor that's a security trust zone inside of an AMD system, uh, bad, real bad. Well, and so, the, the
0: crux of the issue was there was no ASLR, there was no NX bit. NX bit is the NX bit, right? Non executing. So. Yeah, NX bit or Canary. Like none of the. Uh, remediation features, I'll call them, to prevent stack-based execution were implemented in this particular co-processor, as I, as I understand it, uh, which was kind of the scary part of the article.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like, come on, guys. Y- y- I mean, you'd think that it would be turtles all the way down when it came to security. They would do it at every level, but somebody dropped the ball know. here somewhere. So. Yep. PHP, by the way, is in none too good shape either. Uh, I know that they had some issues. uh, I think it was, yeah, two weeks ago. I I remember you had a a PHP related issue um, on the Paul Security Weekly show notes. And so this is more of a continuation of badness. If you look at the actual technical summary, there is something like 20 or 30 bugs for version 7.2.1, 7.1.13, 7.0.27. It just, it's bad, it's really bad. Uh, And to the extent that, you know, remote code execution, or excuse me, arbitrary code execution, uh, important distinction there. Arbitrary code execution is not remote, necessarily. Mm -hmm. But to the extent that some of these bugs, looking at them, uh, so for example, you have one that's remove file name from output to avoid cross-site scripting, right? Like that's something that you could potentially have real problems with. If you're, if you have a non-admin user now being able to get cross-site scripting stored against other users based on like a file name that was stored in the uh, email attachment. Um, yeah. Needless to say, these are all sorts of badness segmentation fault. So uh, again, it's like, okay, now you have denial of service that if you can get a seg fault on the web server, there you go, you're done. And if it's trivial, it's real bad. Also, it also looks
0: like it affects PHP 5 as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, PHP 5.6.33. There's only a couple of them, so it's it's, uh, less so, but I wonder if that's because, in this case, maybe people didn't go deep into PHP 5, given how old it is at this point. Correct. So, I imagine, well... Kind of as WordPress is to Paul Security Weekly, I imagine that PHP will be a continued problem until eventually it goes the way of Flash, which is it never dies. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, I mean, yeah. I mean, to run WordPress,
0: you still, of course, need PHP. I, I don't see that. It'd be interesting to rewrite WordPress in a new framework.
1: JavaScript, basically it would be JavaScript if it was gonna be done that way. But.
0: Right, yeah, it would be some kind of like Angular node thing. I I just, it's going to be so much time until something comes even close to the ecosystem that WordPress has created uh, for its user base. Uh, So we're going to be, in my estimation, stuck with PHP for a long time, unfortunately.
1: Probably true. Probably true. And I know that we're going to be wrapping up here in a few minutes. So we're going to skip over the Western Digital MyCloud series of vulnerabilities. All I will say is there is an unrestricted file upload that is uh, remotely exploitable. There's a hard-coded backdoor, which we talked about last night in Paul Security Weekly. Also, cross-site request forgery, which I think two weeks ago in Paul Security Weekly, I said, is kind of going the way of, di- of the dinosaur. Maybe not. Yeah, uh, not and, in
0: IoT-based systems.
1: <laughs> right. And it's interesting because that also cross-site request forgery was dropped from the OWASP top 10 in the 2017 model. <laughs> so who knew? Uh, but yeah, command injection, denial of service, information disclosure, bad, bad, bad. Uh, Yeah. So needless to say, go check out that in the show notes because it's not good. Uh, The JSON RPC or JSON remote procedure call, um, this is something where an Electrum wallet, which is a uh, a wallet repository for cryptocurrency that exists out on the web, right? So it's kind of like Coinbase, for example. Uh, In this case, they were uh, remotely exploitable via uh, JSON RPC calls from a web server. So your JSON... Uh, or your Electrum wallet could be given instructions if you had a browser open for your Electrum wallet and you went to a website that leveraged this JSON RPC uh, exploit. So, again, badness in in general. The ones that I wanted to close out on uh, specifically, though, is that a new uh, cybersecurity office has been proposed, which for companies like Equifax, if this had existed in the shape and form that it was... Uh, brought up in legislation the fines that Equifax would have been hit with as a result of their breach would have been upwards of I think uh, if it didn't have a cap it would have been 14 billion dollars but it, that's it pretty significant. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, in this case, the the actual uh, legislation is a fifty percent of the company's gross revenue for the wow. previous fiscal year. Uh So yeah, I think in this case it was, ended up being like an equivalent one point five billion if this had existed as legislation and this office had existed. But it goes to show that uh, especially our, our representatives in Congress and in the Senate are not joking around when it comes to making sure that you're doing security for your organization. And as we see application security becoming more and more uh, the forefront of security breaches, and and in this case also uh, security practices that need to take place, we're going to probably see a lot more investment in this space. So stay tuned. <laughs> um,
0: I just feel like the <clears throat> the fine amounts are somewhat interesting like if it's not enough as was the case with the ftc and vtech it was like six hundred fifty thousand dollars That's not enough of a uh kind of a threat to the business to force them to make major changes uh maybe it is uh and we have seen evidence that we talked about where when fines do come down that category or industry other players are like well i want a bug bounty program and i do want to make changes um if the fines are too much uh, I just, I don't think that, you know, I think in legal battles, they'll be like, you know, you can't put us out of business with a fine because we made a mistake and they'll probably work to show, you know, how they can either were more diligent than it appeared on the surface and how they'll be more diligent in the future to get those fines down. Cause I mean, you can't, again, force a company out of business because it had a security vulnerability. Now, of course, there's a lot of factors that play into that, a lot of different scenarios. Um, but I, I don't think that the the government is going to force a company to like go out of business uh, because they had a security breach. Who knows? I mean, and, maybe they could. But I think that in legal, you know various legal teams and large companies that you know certainly that's that's gonna uh, be taken into account and be fought
1: and and I would say that the most important thing about this particular piece of legislation that they've put forward is specifically to companies like Equifax that uh, in this case are managing. Uh, like PII that is effectively your whole life, right? So it's not yeah. every single company that would fall into this, uh, but it's the Data B- Breach Prevention and Compensation Act uh, is designed to affect companies that have uh, a-, a good deal of your information. So not just like, you know, Paul Security Weekly lost its uh, list of registered uh, listeners, for example, right? Like that wouldn't be something that would be a 50% gross revenue event for you based on this legislation, Um, which is, uh, but still though, for the really big organizations out there uh, it's kind of like GDPR, right? Like if this gets passed, even in some form, if it's not a 50% Mm -hmm. of gross revenue and that's like the high point for negotiation purposes, Mm. even if it's 25% or 10%, that's no longer a small number, uh, like 650,000 like VTech was. The last one that I wanted to wrap up on, though, Paul, if you wanted to do just one more. Okay, let's do it. Just uh, one more. Was the, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like uh, the Steve Jobs, one more thing. That's right. Um, so the, the one more thing of today's episode is uh, a Microsoft Secure article on application fuzzing in the era of machine learning and AI. And I thought it was interesting because as co- companies are moving to the left, right, they're trying to get uh, implementations of security, uh, SAS and DAST. Uh, tooling in place to actually scan for vulnerabilities before it's ever released or even built in some cases. Uh, This is an article that talks about how things like machine learning and AI can be leveraged to continuously fuzz applications for vulnerabilities, uh, even including things like uh, neural fuzzing is what they call it at the very end of the article. So uh, I will leave uh, our listeners with that. Definitely go out and check out that article. If you're looking at what the next five to maybe 10 or 15 years of application security looks like, I think that this is going to be a part of it. So put this on your radar.
0: Sweet. Well, Keith, thank you very much for this awesome episode of Application Security Weekly. Thank you everyone for listening and watching. We'll see you next time.